Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the Couchside Judges. I'm Scott Fontana. You can follow me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fontana. And I'm Dan Urban. Follow me at the Dan Urban. Follow the podcast at Couchside Judges and subscribe to us wherever you listen. And if you like this show, I know you've been waiting to give us that five-star review. Today's the day. Do it. And as always, we taught judging in MMA. You should learn the criteria. You can find it at abcboxing.com. Dan, today is a very, very special edition of the Couchside Judges. One that I, I think probably in the uh, judging community or those obsessed with at least the scoring of rounds probably have been waiting for this uh, epic team up to happen, sir. Uh, it's a exciting day. It, we have, as our guest judge, to break down the action from UFC 269, none other than the pod god himself, Sean Sheehan. Sean, welcome to the Couchside Judges. Thanks, lads. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I love the work you've been doing over the last few years, and uh, you're on maybe the, the same crusade that I've been on. There's like there's <laughs> about six of us in the whole entire world that are kind of on the same crusade. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, great to be on. I, I really appreciate it, and as I said, I appreciate the great work you do. Absolutely, and, and honestly, I think you're probably overestimating. I think you, you probably you said six. It might just be us three. But I think so, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think you know it's good to have somebody, and I do think uh, the work that you know probably to us to a degree, but I think a lot of the work you've done as as a much more visible uh, proponent of the criteria and kind of clarifying it for people. I think it has over time helped a little bit, it's chipping away at people. You know? Yeah, I, I I do. I really do think it does. Like it helps the people who it helps, if that makes sense. Like everyone who sees the criteria. Or here's uh, you know here's me talking about it, here's you talking about it, you know listens to maybe my podcast with with Ben Cartledge or the, the the people you've had on here speaking about it. Once you kind of hear that knowledge and you get that knowledge into your brain, I feel like it's something you kind of want to get out far and wide. Even someone like Aaron Bronsetter over the last year, you know, he had me on the podcast at one stage, and he's someone who's become a proponent for the criteria as well. And if I feel like someone like him has changed. I was talking to, I don't know if you know him, Scroobius Pip. He's like a, a, a really famous rapper and podcaster um, who's a massive MMA fan, probably one of the biggest MMA fans in the world. I was on his podcast yesterday and he's done Mark Goddard's course and all. And he, you know, I was telling him he watches fights in a completely different way because of studying the criteria. And I feel like lots of people are like that. So if you can get it to the people, which I've tried to get it to, it's a tough task as you know, uh, but once you do get it to the people, I feel like it does change them and it changes how they, they look at the fights and it really changes the sport for them. What all everything I'm hearing from you is uh, if you can change and I can change, anybody can change. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Sean, before we kind of dive in, I want you to kind of shout out, of course, your myriad projects you work on, shout out your socials, all that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, uh, I suppose my, my biggest social is, is Twitter. I'm Sean NBA over on Twitter. Um, I work for severe MMA and Sherdog.com. So I've, I'll start with Sherdog. I suppose that's the easiest. I have three podcasts every week. Uh, one preview show, usually whether it's Bellator, PFL, Cage Warrior, something like that, or the UFC, if, if those are not on, um, I have a betting show every, uh, usually Thursday ish. Um, looking at the the top five bets for the weekend, and then I have one other show, whether it's a, um, a, an interview or whatever it might be, or, or me just talking about say judging. I've done a couple of judging shows, uh, so all three of those are on the, the Sure Dog YouTube channel for free. And then I have the Severe MMA podcast out every Sunday for free. Search Severe MMA on Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Republic, wherever you get your podcasts. And then I have the Patreon as well, which is probably honestly the my best content and the best content that. 
I produce with the other lads like Ian O'Neill and Andy Stevenson and Harry Powell and Graham McDonald, and we, we bring out four at least podcasts every week over there. I have like an hour long, to 45 minutes, hour long QA every Tuesday. There's a podcast on Wednesday, Thursday, and sometimes a Friday as well. So, yeah, I kept going. I have about 10 or 12 podcasts every week. So, Busy so, man. There's lots of them. Actually, would you believe this is my eighth podcast I've recorded in the last 24 hours? Yeah, last 24 hours. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, my voice is almost gone, but here we go. We'll be, we'll be good. <laughs> and I know you had just gotten the booster. I know you mentioned that on your show. Dan oh actually just got his booster, what, 45 minutes ago? An hour yeah, ago? Yeah, about an hour ago. It it's killed me honestly. Like the first two weren't too bad. I I was just the the day after I got the booster, I was just a complete zombie. It just killed me, and then the next day I was just fell asleep and <laughs> I was just <laughs> out of it. I have a big swollen arm on me at the moment as well. It's swollen up like to a worrying level. I'm like, well, do I need to go to a doctor? But yeah, I'm actually I feel much better today, and uh, yeah, it's grand. I'm I'm glad to have gotten it, but uh, yeah, it definitely put me out of action for a couple of days. Even. Uh, uh, I know we'd be talking about the Ryan Hall fight uh, later on, but I fell asleep and completely missed that fight, so I had to go back and watch that today. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 it's funny. I went, I fell asleep at like seven o'clock, missed cage wires, missed the start of the UFC, and the the main the 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 second part of the prelims start at one a.m. here. So I like set my clock for one a.m. I got up out of bed at one a.m. and just went downstairs and watched it like seven a.m. <laughs> so uh, that's the the joys of uh, being an MMA fan over here. But especially after that booster, it did uh, knock me for six for a while. I know, and you know what? Anyone over in across the pond or in Europe, you know, greater uh, continental Europe, anyone who's watching those fights live, I give them a lot of props because it. I mean, it's hard to, for some people I know to stay up late to watch these like here, and it's you know technically on our time, but but I mean, you guys, you guys are a certain level of hardcore. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty tough to be honest. Um, I wish I could do it less, <laughs> honestly. But I, <laughs> I I I love watching the fights live, and there's especially when I do the podcast. You know, I do the Severe MMA podcast on a Sunday, so I kind of need to, um, you know, I kind I kind of need to watch them live. But uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, I'll get a sleeping pattern at some time next year, and I'll be able to to get back into it. But now the fact that I'm um, covering MMA full time. It's a little bit easier. I'm, I'm kind of on my own time anyway. And I always worked evenings previously anyway, so it wasn't too bad. I've been lucky over the years. But for a lot of people, uh, there's probably a lot of tired heads from MMA fans on the Monday morning going, in, going into work. But uh, yeah, it's definitely tough. You know, but the, the amount of events, what is our 43 UFC events now a year? Bellator, I think you're doing a lot more. PFL are doing a lot more next year as well. And then you add in, you know, okay, cage warriors are at our time. So it's uh, not too bad, but there's there's a lot of stuff and and a lot of uh, sleepless weekends and sleepless nights as well. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. Yeah. And hopefully next year too, the UFC calendar will permit them to, you know, travel abroad more, go back to Europe. You know, we'll, we'll see what the state of the world is like. But I imagine, you know, when there were more European uh, events, especially because they would kind of do them almost in like rapid succession, you know, and get you guys on the same calendar over there. So you got a couple of weeks where you can just watch it on your normal time and go to bed at a normal time. Yeah, it'd be great. It's it's great. The the Fight Island ones are some of them are on normal time, and that was absolutely fantastic. But some of the you know some of the UFC cards that are on say at what time would it be seven and seven ET, which would be midnight here. That's perfect for me because okay, you you know the like the Premier League evening games here are over. Uh, there's no clashing. Get to bed at like three a.m. That's perfect. I can get up at like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock the next day. There's no mm. problem with that. Uh, it's actually almost worse when it's an earlier UFC card because it clashes with real sports. <laughs> 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 I need like a, I need like a go between. I need I need a whatever. Uh, 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 
daylight savings might bring us to like three hours between America and uh, and Ireland and, and the UK, and that would be absolutely perfect. There you go. Well, I know this weekend it, it is a 7 o'clock uh, Eastern Time main card. Uh, we'll talk about that later, but hopefully that hits your sweet spot a little bit before we get that month off. I'll take off. that. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, and I welcome that month off, but we do, of course, have to get to all of the uh, incredible events of UFC 269 on Saturday, starting off with the light heavy, or excuse me, lightweight champion, Charles Oliveira, getting the win over Dustin Poirier. I think there were a lot of people, obviously, there was the debate of who's the real champion? Is it Dustin Poirier, the uncrowned champion? Because he, you know, ostensibly was the best guy and didn't get to fight in that championship fight that was put together uh, earlier this year with Oliveira and Michael Chandler. And now they finally got it together and Charles Oliveira emerged. Does he bring balance to the lightweight division? Dan, I want to start with you. I think so. I I always considered him the top guy in that division. I mean, I think Poirier had the opportunity. He passed on it for the money fight. So you, you can't be the best if you don't have the belt. That, that's my opinion. And I, I think Oliveira's great. I hate that p- there was some kind of narrative coming out this week that he breaks in fights. I, I've never seen that in his career. That, None that I can even recall. I don't remember distinctly uh, that particular narrative surrounding him. I feel like there were times where he got hit and he kind of he faded, but I don't know that it was because he had some sort of quit in him or anything like that. And I, I would have thought that the Chandler fight, if nothing else, would have dispelled that narrative. I can't believe that is what grew into the the pre-fight talk about this fight after what we just saw against Michael Chandler. I mean, that he got borderline 10-8 in that round, uh, in that round one against Michael Chandler. He comes back and he, he wins the fight in, what, the, the first 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I'm... And, and he he got tested here with Poya as well, and he, he weathered the storm and got a finish. If anything, I, I would think of uh, 2021 should be the year that we thought of Charles Oliveira as the guy who knows how to weather the storm, come back strong, and get the finish still. That's how I look at that. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, it look, as we saw with Amanda Nunes the last day, you can't always write that off. You know, because sometimes, sometimes it is brought out of people. So I, I do understand. And I, I spoke about it on the Severe MA podcast before it. And, and I, I agree with exactly what you were saying there that I think those questions have been answered, especially by what has happened last Saturday, but also in, in the Chandler fight. Um, but everyone, you know, everyone's tough until someone tougher is standing opposite you, you know, and someone who refuses to go away and hits very hard. And is just better than you in all different ways. And, you know, everyone has it inside them to kind of wilt. And you have to be made wilt. And it's very hard to make Charles Oliveira wilt. A lot harder these days than it was, uh, I suppose, five or six years ago. So, I, I look, those questions, no, you can never answer a question in, in mixed martial arts. I think we've sure. we've been around the game long enough to prove that. But those questions have definitely been quelled. And uh, he doesn't have them, you know, under him like before. Like I tweeted during the the fight, both of these guys used to be featherweights with questionable chins. Yes, like, <laughs> and they were just beating the heads off each other for that full first round, and no one was was going out. Like especially Oliveira. Um, I, I look at weight cutting. I think had a lot to do with that as well. I do, um, I agree. I agree with you. Oh yeah, I, I I would agree. Look, Oliveira, you you don't get to where Oliveira is right now without being tough, without being able to take shots. And if you look at his career trajectory, 14 and 0 uh, in the start of his career, then 8 and 8, and I think with one no contest in the middle of his career, and now 10 and 0 in the third part of his career. That kind of tells a story that there was issues in the middle of the career, and we can't act like that never happened. And, and he didn't, you know, go out a little bit maybe easier in fights than, than he would today. 
But today is today, and where he is today is a really tough and a really good fighter. The one thing I would say, uh, in defense of Charles Oliveira, with kind of that 8-8 eight eight stretch you're sort of talking about with that no contest, which was, of course, a total beatdown against uh, Nick Lentz in the first of their weird trilogy, uh, which was totally a lopsided trilogy. I don't know how they fought three times. But uh, I would say that Oliveira got rushed way too early into big fights because he, I mean, his first loss was against Jim Miller, uh, a guy who actually Dan has rolled with before. Uh, is that fair to say that you got rolled or that you rolled with him? Uh, he chose dominant. I've rolled with him one time and it was a, a drill where he could choose whatever position he wanted with strikes. He chose full mount and it wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you probably should have been brought along at much slower pace, like probably the same type of pace that we're seeing with Sean O'Malley now. It would have been much more fair for Oliveira. So he got a lot of fights with a lot of tough guys. Like there's no real bad losses on his record when you look at those those fights but yeah obviously now he's hit the stride where he is he's really impressive and i think he's starting to build a legacy that if like, i mean if he puts together a couple more championship victories somehow you're gonna start talking about him as like is charles Oliveira one of the best lightweights of all time i'm not saying the why best we, but maybe why do we do that I, I it's that really annoys me like well why do we do that so quickly these days <laughs> like the, the usman one as well now i think usman is very good i'm a huge fan of his but like Come on, you're you're not GSP yet. I agree. Let's give it another yeah. while, you know. And lightweight is a little bit different because there hasn't been that many standout lightweights in terms of domination. Even Habib up and left before, I suppose he could dominate. And BJ Penn lost, and Frankie Edgar lost, and Vincent Henderson lost. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different, I suppose, a lightweight. But yeah, come on, he's he's too title fights we can't be talking about that yet the reason uh, the reason i start putting him in there though sean is the fact that he i mean he's got the the record for submissions he keeps on winning by submission there, there's a very standout quality to him that kind of goes beyond just the championship victories um but you're right it, it's i mean i'm not going to anoint him even in a couple fights as the best lightweight of all time but i think you can start putting him in the conversation if he's still a champion from year from now he's not he's not conor mcgregor let's be, <laughs> let's be honest there but yeah it, who is the greatest lightweight of all time that's a good. I mean, Dan, I know who you'll say. Ah, oh, it's BJ Penn. Yeah, that's easy for you. I would say the most accomplished lightweight of all time is BJ Penn, but I would say the greatest of all time. If you want to just take like best peak, that is Khabib. Yeah, I, I remember I had a. I did this before in the podcast, and I can't even remember who I came up with. But I, I think I came up with Benson Henderson. Just like, cause I, I think it's weird. I would. I, I find it very hard to call Habib the best, cause I, I love to look at fighters. Uh, with their all-round game as well as their wins and have even some great wins but he didn't have enough great wins to overtake the maybe the technical deficiencies even though his technical deficiencies didn't really matter because he was so good against people but yeah and, and look there's different eras as well we all sure. know Habib would absolutely destroy BJ Pin and, and things but yeah, I, I, there isn't really a standout name I don't think in, in the lightweight division but uh yeah, it's true. Charles Oliveira, it is. Let's, no, let's, let's crown him. <laughs> there's so much parity in the lightweight division, like th throughout history. The funny thing is, I think there's been a lot of parity in welterweight, but there's also just been co totally dominant champion after totally dominant champion for the most part, too, which has been yeah. the really funny thing about those two weight classes that are so close. Uh, but what about Dustin Poirier? To kind of move on from Oliveira, does he have one more run in him to get back to the title shot, or do you think uh, that idea is done? Dan, what do you think? Uh, I think... Poirier's one fight away from being back in the mix. I, really? I think, I think it sets up Chandler Poirier perfect. Ooh. Winners, the winner of that fight, right back in the mix, I think. 
I, I honestly, I disagree. I, I do think that he's if he's going to get there, I think he's going to have to do a little bit more work than that, just because it's so crowded up there. I mean, you got Islam Makhachev, well, you got Justin Gaethje, you got, uh, of, of course, Makhachev has to get through uh, Benil Dariush, too. You know, there's a lot of really excellent lightweights up there, so yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying one, one win away. I'm saying one win against Chandler, he's back, you know, the Chandler too, at the yeah. top. So I, I don't know about that. I, what, what do you think, Sean? Break the tie. Uh, I, I would normally disagree with Dan there, but I, I think he's right because look what's happened. Gaethje has gotten one win and suddenly he's right back in there. And that, that irks me a little bit, I think, especially in divisions like Lightweight. There's so much of a queue there. All of those guys deserve, like Benil Ariush, I think, deserves one right now. I think Makachev deserves one. I, I think Gaethje should be behind him and should be, you know, getting a couple of wins to get back to there and I think Barrier should be the same and Tony Ferguson whoever you know is on the way um but that's not the way it is uh so Barrier could get one win against Michael Chandler and get right back in there but I, I was actually just doing the Q&A about maybe an hour ago and someone asked about that and my my kind of answer to that question was there aren't enough guys better than Barrier to deny him I don't think now that's not to say there aren't very good guys but it's to say how good Barrier actually is I just don't think there's enough guys to beat him to deny him a title shot for long enough. So I think he will be back unless he decides to go to 170, unless he decides to go the the Diaz-McGregor route or uh, maybe retires. But uh, yeah, I think if he goes back and tries to be a contender again, I think he will get his way back, yeah. Retirement wouldn't surprise me, honestly. The way he was talking, it sounds like he kind of wants to slow down his schedule a lot. I mean, he made a lot of money this year, uh, obviously off the Connor fights, but he made he probably made good money off of this one, too. So I would think that uh, a man like that who's been fighting this long, very comfortable, if he wants to step away after all this time, I, I it's hard to blame him, and it's kind of easy to see it. So uh, we'll see. We'll let the man uh, decide that on his own. I'm not pushing him to retire, but uh, what what about... Let's move on to the, uh, the other title fight, actually, because obviously this was... I, I did listen to your, your show, Sean, uh, about talking about this fight. Juliana Pena, the, the major upset here. I know you call this. What, what did you call this, actually? I, I don't want to misquote you. What did you say about this fight as far as being an upset? Uh, I think it's the greatest upset in UFC history. I don't think there's anything close, to be honest. Um, everyone will point to, to Matt Serra uh, against GSP. But I, I was looking up the records today. And look, GSP had some great wins. He'd beaten BJ and he'd beaten Matt Hughes. But it was his first title defense. People, people need to, to remember that. He'd never defended a title. This wasn't the GOAT GSP. This wasn't the GSP we were just talking about Cameron Usman having to uh, to overtake with another couple of years of wins. He wasn't there yet. He was a great fighter. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking absolutely nothing away from GSP. But he wasn't the GOAT. If GSP had retired at that moment, he wouldn't have been called the GOAT. It's what came over the next 10 fights, over the next five or six years that made him that. Amanda Nunes is the GOAT. She's the greatest of all time. There's no denying it. There's nobody close, really. The only person close, Chris Cyborg, she devastated her. She knocked out herself and Ronda Rousey in 99 seconds combined. There's nobody close. And Juliana, Pe- Be- Juliana Pena beat her in her pomp, in her prime, right in the middle of it. Holly Holm, Ronda Rousey should not be in the discussion as biggest upset of all time. Lots of people were picking Holly Holm. Holly Holm was a very good fighter. You know, okay, if you want to look at the betting, betting can be thrown out the window sometimes. Yeah, we don't need to look like at that. it from a betting standpoint, sure. Yeah, when you look at yeah, there's there's lots of fights. There was, there was Ethan Hughes fight this year. I was looking at I was doing the, the awards today. That's another one. You could look, there's lots of big upsets. The one um also one Grabaka Hitman pulled up about the uh Bingy Raddock, was it who got knocked out by a guy uh, who was O and O 
fighting over his girlfriend and the guy uh, just retired as a one and all fighter after knocking him out. You can put that up there. But if we want to talk about like the top level, high level MMA, this this was the number one. Sometimes as well in MMA, right? And it, it really uh, hit home with me after the, the knockout, uh, the impact Kasangana one, you know, the vaulted spinning wheel kick yes, KO. Yes. Um, I, I was Josh Gross and a few other people were saying, oh, look, a good knockout, but well, you know, don't forget this knock. That was the greatest knockout of all time. The second it happened, it was the greatest knockout of all time. <laughs> we need to adjust history to put that as number one and everything else can come after it, right? I, I like that. I like it. I agree. And I, I feel like we're too slow to adjust history just because this is the history we have had for the last 10 years or whatever it might be, and we don't want to adjust our thinking. We have to adjust our thinking. That was the greatest knockout of all time. This was the biggest upset of all time. Full stop. What is funny, though, is is kind of what you're saying here is is that we, we won't adjust that. But also, at the same time, we're also prisoners of the moment, too. So it's it's almost like you get the worst of both worlds in MMA. Yeah, but also, like, we, we have the background behind this. Like, uh, Amanda Nunes, in this moment, is the greatest woman to ever, ever fight. Like, Chris Weidman knocking out Anderson Silva is up there as well. It's one thing, but a lot of people were picking Chris Weidman, thought he was very good, and, and the next kind of guy on the way up. So, you know, not a, as big an upset, but we we rarely had as dominant a champion as Amanda Nunes ever. Like, imagine if if uh, you know uh, Lauren Murphy had knocked out Valentina Shevchenko. What an upset that would have been. That would have been one of them as well. Even if Valentina's not even as long a reigning or. Dominant as Amanda Nunes, but obviously because she's lost to Amanda Nunes as well, and she hasn't sure. gone up and down weight classes to win them. It's you know, I, I just feel like the context is there, and okay, it happened like three or four days ago, but I don't care if it happened, you know, three or four months ago or a year ago. It's it's still be it. The, I think I think the context is there. Julianne opinion. I didn't even think about the possibility of her winning until she was walking out. I think most people didn't. No one was picking her. The only thing I kind of half called on it was maybe Amanda Nunes. Won't have prepared right. Maybe she's in her silk pajamas, like Conor McGregor, and he's yacht and has too much money and is not prepared right. <laughs> That's the only question I had about the fight. I didn't think for one second Juliana Pena could win in any way. And look, did did she win or did Amanda Nunes lose? That's another debate, I suppose. But sure, that's whatever happened. Yeah, that, that the fight went that way, and it was a huge shock, the biggest ever. Damn, it, what was your level of surprise? Uh, if you could rate it one to okay, ten. Okay, I, I agree with Sean in the the context. Uh... He's saying because Amanda Nunes is the GOAT and her losing, that is a shock. I'm more shocked in the way it went down. I feel that choke was in there not very long. She didn't really try to fight it, I don't feel. Uh, so that was kind of shocked about that, that she kind of just accepted defeat. Um, but I do think I was more shocked when Bisping knocked out Rockhold than I was really watching. You, it, that that was the shocker for you. That was more shock. I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't think Gold Pillow Fist was going to gonna knock out Luke Rockhold <laughs> um you know he does have a bunch of TKOs but I didn't think he was gonna beat Rockhold like that but the, the way Sean is saying Rockhold was never considered a goat sure, so not even close so in terms of of that I, I think this is probably yeah the, the most most shocking want, in those terms that one is and I agree with you I think that's a great example that would be up there on my list as well I think there's a little bit of a difference though that like the one second KO oh he's gone he's gone it's over is yeah. is a little bit different to like three minutes of a beating however it might have been that Amanda Nunes took it so I do get your point there I was definitely more shocked at that I was more shocked that the, the Anderson Silva Chris Weidman one as well just because it was so mm -hmm. so flashy but like 
I don't know what, how you felt, but I was watching that fight on Saturday night, and I was like, I I can't believe this. I'm and I have trained myself, I'm sure, like you, to watch it very much. Fighter A versus Fighter B. Sure. This person is landing these shots, and this person, it doesn't matter, nameless, faceless bodies. But I, I was like, what? This cat? No, no, no. This can't be. <laughs> I was kind of. I, I was talking myself out of it. Like, no, the Fighter A isn't landing these shots. No, no, it's Fighter B landing. You know, it it just made no sense. It didn't compute. I had to watch the fight back three times to really understand what happened on it. And I tend to agree with Dan. There's there's no no denying it. Amanda Nunes quit. Uh, she gave up. That choke was not in, and she decided the fight was over for her. And, uh, you know, that's something she's going to have to deal with mentally and physically, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Maybe there's a little devil's advocate in me here when I say this, but I, I do kind of wonder if maybe she just was totally out, more or less, like by the time she got there, and not just from an energy standpoint, but maybe even potentially from a, a mental acuity standpoint, and she's just not being able to sharply defend herself right now. I don't know yeah. how much that would be a factor, but I, I, I would have to think that's at least a part of the equation here. Yeah, I would agree. But, I definitely, and I, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a shots landed sort of thing as well because Pena didn't really land anything massive on her at all. I actually the, thought that Nunez was landing the heavier shots in the earlier part was. of that fighter fight. I thought she was winning the fire fight, and all of a sudden it just like she started losing steam. It was, it was very clear that Pena was not losing steam. She was still going with it. It was like, uh oh, the the, the tide kind of changed. It was a very yeah. interesting little sequence. Like I, I wish I had the chance to go back and rewatch that sequence and kind of just see as, you know, maybe the the sliding scale moved from, you know, one side to the other throughout that. It was a, it was a very interesting kind of visual, at least from my standpoint. But the one thing I would say about this upset is it's not that I predicted this. I don't want to pretend like I was some sort of Nostradamus and saw this coming. But Betty of mine, who I was watching the fight with, he goes to me, he said, listen, if, if Pena is going to win, how is she going to win? And I go, well, she's probably going to get like a choke or something like that. She's going to get a, get something on the ground. But I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this woman's never on the ground anymore. Like, it's probably still not going to happen. So I, I will say I allowed for the possibility that if it was going to end, it was going to be basically the mm -hmm. method that it ended. But... Don't don't put that as me knowing anything. That was just kind of like I pulled that out. But then I did say, God, I wonder. So that's why I like almost like on a scale of one to ten surprise. I was more like a nine than a ten because I I'd already put that scenario in my head. And I was like, I guess maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> it was still absolutely a shocker. I mean, by any measure, this is definitely one of, if not the greatest upsets of all time. I, it's hard for me to debate uh, Sean on this and say he's wrong. But let's assume for a second that Juliana Pena and Amanda Nunes are going to rematch because I, I have to think that this is the only fight to put together. Uh, who deserves to be the favorite when this goes down? Dan, why don't you start? Nunes. Easy? Yeah, easy. Okay. What about you, Sean? Oh, 100% Nunes. Like, uh, minus 500 at least, I would say. Okay. I, I think someone put it up. She's like minus 250. Like, the, the reason Juliana Pena won the fight was because she believed she could win the fight and Amanda Nunes gave her the fight. Like, if she didn't believe she could have won the fight, she wouldn't have won it. Um, and, the man, you know, even though Amanda Nunes kind of gave it away to her, if Amanda Nunes doesn't give it away to her the next time, she won't win the fight. Like, that's just, I think, the fact of the matter. Um, but look, we'll see. We, we never know. But I would be very surprised if Amanda Nunes doesn't prepare properly for the next fight, and it's, <clears throat> you know, mentally and physically. And uh, I don't even think she needs to prepare to be as good as she was when she fought Cyborg or Ronda Rousey or anything like that. I just think she needs to be a little bit better and she'll win pretty handily. Like, so. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree. I, I would think that it has to be Amanda Nunes who's the favorite here. I mean, realistically, 
the first round bore out, I think, the, the level of skill difference between these two fighters. It was a lot of decisions that were made by Nunez that I think kind of led her down the path of, of defeat, unfortunately, for her. But uh, the one thing I do want to get into before we get to our contested rounds, because, of course, we've got we've got the one man who I think cares about judging as much as we do. We've got to get to these rounds. But before we do, Sean, who was the one fighter who you were most impressed with outside of these four title fights? Um, I would maybe say Kai Kara France. Uh, I've been a big fan of him for for a good while, and I picked Cody Garbrandt to win this fight, and I was like, the second I saw the fight starting, I was like, why did I pick Cody Garbrandt? <laughs> you know, I was one of those, like, why did I, why did I, why am I so stupid, why did I do that? But uh, yeah, I like I like Garbrandt. It, look, it was one of those fights, fight cards, where um, you, you could have sent me that question for the last 10 fight cards, and someone would stick out. Oddly, there wasn't really someone who stuck out for me on this one. Like, O'Malley... I, I think he was just probably even was so outmatched O'Malley couldn't really even look good it was just so easy for him the Emmett Ige fight was close Dominic Cruz had a, not a great first round but came back and did well to Ivasa is was, always was fun but yeah I don't know I um, my boy Spencer Kite will probably give out to me for not saying Andrew Munoz but I didn't actually see that fight because I was asleep and didn't watch it back so I missed all <laughs> these fights well. shout, yeah, shout uh, out to Spencer we love Spencer I, I, I gotta go with Kai Kara friends okay what about you Dan Erin uh, Blanfield, uh, she looked awesome. Eventually, when she's on the ground, her ground and pound is going to be deadly. She seemed very grappling oriented, but eventually it's going to turn into some strikes, and she's going to get some some wild finishes. I think. Yeah, you kind of stole mine there, Dan. I I was real. I was very much singling her out because I think she opened a lot of eyes. Uh, nothing. I wasn't as terribly surprised with her because I distinctly remembered how just totally dominant she was against Sarah Alpar back in September. Um, now, granted, I, I think there was probably a discrepancy of skill in that fight just in general. So coming into this one, the expectations was, at least on my end, that it would at least be a very uh, competitive fight with Miranda Maverick, who I think is still a, an interesting prospect. But obviously, one of these women is the clear prospect to watch at 125 pounds, and it's definitely not Miranda Maverick. It is absolutely Aaron Blanchfield, uh, who is from our neck of the woods in New Jersey, actually. So that's very cool to see. She trains uh, at Silver Fox, Dan, who used to be uh, was one of the first black belts of our professor, uh, Jamie Cruz. No, Silver Fox is under Henzo. No, he trained with, the, with him as well. They trained together, but Jamie didn't promote him. Oh, my so. mistake. Okay, thank you for yeah. correcting me, sir. Uh, but that is, you know, I think we really got to get to these contested rounds because it is, uh, there's some fascinating ones, I think, here. And again, to the company that we have to be able to break this down, I think is, I'm very excited for this. So let's get to it, starting with the title fight, which, of course, did not go to the scorecards. But Charles Oliveira did have a round that was a potential 10-8 on the judges' cards. Two judges, Sal D'Amato and Junichiro Camillo, Saw round two for Oliveira as a 10-8, and it was Derek Cleary in the minority seeing this one as a 10-9 for Oliveira. Dan, what happened in this round first? Yeah, so uh, they come out, Oliveira, you know, presses Poirier against the fence, they clinch for a while, end up in a scramble where Oliveira gets into an omoplata position, whether he's grabbing the glove, isn't, not here nor, here nor there. Uh, ends up forcing Dustin to roll into guard, and then from there... It's Oliveira landing intermittent elbows for the final three minutes of the round. I think the damage is there for a 10 eight. I just, uh, the duration was a little low. You know, Oliveira's never passing passing out of the guard. I would have loved to see Oliveira press a little bit more to get closer to the 10 eight. Um, but I went for 10-9, Oliveira. I, you know, I did as well, but I, I think damage is kind of tricky down because obviously he's landing quite a bit down there, but I do think the 
duration is the one that that we still have quite a lot of because he's down there for a long time. I mean, there's there's some good grappling dominance lasting for a long time, sustained grappling, uh, uh, not uh, grappling dominance for for lack of a better term. I do think this is a round that, uh, and I'm probably stealing Sean's thunder here, but I do think this is a round that would have been more like a 10-8 about a year ago, and and now I don't think it really would be. Although obviously, maybe not because Aldamato and Junior Chirukamijo they saw it as a 10-8. Uh, it's it's a fascinating round. Uh, Sean, take it over here. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, I was surprised that two judges gave it as a 10-8. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, I, I as I as you said there, and uh, you know, I kind of have alluded to. I think it would have been a 10-8 a year ago, uh, or a borderline 10-8 a year ago. I thought for sure it'd be a 10-9 now, but I'm wrong, and I'm, I'm glad I was wrong to be honest, because I, I want, I want us to go back to where we were a year ago. I think we had a, a much better uh, right there with you, yeah, yeah, a much better situation then. But it's, it's a very interesting one because, um, I was talking to Graham on, on the podcast about it, the Suriname podcast this week, and he kind of made the argument that. The elbows which Charles Oliveira landed were not cutting elbows, but they were more damaging than cutting elbows. The way he was kind of knocking, Char- um, sorry, yeah, Charles Oliveira into Dusty Poria. He was kind of knocking his head against the ground and re- just making it dirty and nasty for him. And, you know, I, I think he's right, but I think that's one of those ones where we have been kind of programmed to do it the other way. And I was talking to someone last night about how the criteria used to be years ago and why, you know, we use the word impact instead of damage in, and you know, we will, we use the word damage, but in the criteria it's written as impact. And it's because damage was looked at um, as, you know, cuts and blood and, and, you know, superficial damage, I suppose. Whereas impact is literally what it means. Impact. These shots were impactful shots more than damaging shots. And if you're to go by the criteria and look at the word impact in it, they did have, you know, a lot of impact, and they had, they they did have impact, and did they have the overwhelming impact, which the the new ten eight thing is to to go by? I would say no, to be honest. Um, so that's why I was surprised it didn't. Uh, that was a, that's why I was surprised it was two ten eights here. Uh, I, even honestly, even a year ago, I I think I would have still given it a ten nine to be honest, but it would have been more borderline. But usually, I've I've been told by, and I'm sure you have as well. If it's borderline ten eight now, it's a ten nine. Yeah. Uh, so that that's why I was a little bit surprised, but um, you know, happily surprised. Yeah, I mean, likewise, I I would actually like to see these as ten eights too. The only thing I can imagine from uh, judges Damato and Camillo is obviously their they're right there. They they can actually feel the impact of this much better than we can on television. So I'd have to think that they 100%. must have felt it in in especially because you're talking about kind of that that bouncing off the the mat kind of thing that has to have weighed heavily in their minds. And so you know obviously you, you got to defer to the judges uh, to to a, a solid degree when it comes to rewatching and rescoring these fights and things like that. So that's where I imagine we did end up on on the eight from these guys here. So I, I'm happy to see it just like you. We did ultimately all three of us actually see it the same way as Derek Clear, who was the out judge. And uh, Dan, when when we see it the same way as the out judge, what do we call that on our show? Couch side over. It's our little sound effect that probably is annoying everybody, Sean, but we'll, we'll keep doing it. I like it. There you go. There you go. So we'll move on, though, to the uh, the other main card bout that uh, had a couple uh, a couple of rounds here because it was a split decision. Uh, all three judges seeing uh, a different scorecard here. So rounds one and two, these are what we're talking about with Jeff Neal getting the win over Santiago Ponzinibbio. It was 30-27, 29-28, and 29-28 the other way for Ponzinibbio. Dan, what's happening in round one? Uh, very slow start. I don't think much of anything is thrown for about a minute 15. 
uh, once the pace picks up, Neil's landing some pretty solid punches, uh, and everything Ponzinibbio's throwing, nothing's really landing all that cleanly. Uh, Neil lands a nice head kick, and Ponzinibbio starts bleeding from his eye a bit. Mark Smith is just yelling at both of them, like, throughout the entire round to watch their fingers. I think he's mostly yelling at Ponzinibbio, though. Uh, then that low blow with 30 seconds left, uh, allows, I guess, Ponzinibbio to recover, and that's when he lands his best offense, when he lands, like, a three-punch combo, uh, and then a semi-blocked high kick. I think it's pretty decently close, but I think it's uh, rather clear for Neil. Yeah, I saw it the same way. I saw it as a Neil round, um, which I should say is the majority score here from Derek Cleary and Sal D'Amato with Doug Crosby uh, seeing this for Ponzinibbio. I don't think it's crazy to go either way necessarily in this round, but I did see it as a Neil round. I thought it was it was enough, uh, but... Anytime you get a closer round like this, especially because Ponzinibbio, I, I do believe, uh, according to the UFC stats, which take them for what they will. The judges, of course, don't have them. But Ponzinibbio did outland in, quote unquote, significant strikes, like 26 to 20 or something like that. So technically, there's a, a little bit of a volume edge, but I don't think they were as impactful as what Neil's landing. So I, I saw it that way for Neil as well. Uh, Sean, what about you? Uh, as I was watching this fight, uh, and especially the first round, I actually watched it back maybe an hour ago, just before we started here, uh, I was just thinking to myself, well, whatever stats they put up, they're wrong. Because there was so many missed shots in this round. It was it was untrue. Like, I don't remember a fight in recent times where there was just nothing landed over and over and over. It again. sure it did feel both. like they were like five feet apart most of the, like Like, yeah. probably eight feet apart most of the time, right? It was like a Holly Holm fight or something. It was, yeah, it was, it was awful. Um, I really didn't enjoy this fight. I thought it was a terrible fight, just boring. And uh, but I look, I think we're we're to look at the judging criteria and apply it the way it is. We're to apply it with the most impactful shots of the round. Uh, I think they came from Jeff Neal in that first round. That head kick, I think, was pretty impactful. Even though I don't think it landed fully, that's one of those shots as well, though. If you're to look at it from a judge's point of view, if they don't see it, and I know we'll talk about Ryan Hall later on, but there was a shot like that as well. And, you know, when Ryan Hall falls over, well, does he fall over and does he jump over or does he get knocked down? Like, did that head kick land? Did it get blocked? It's one of those, if you're on the wrong judge on the wrong side and you don't see it properly, it could sway it around the other way. I, I scored it to Neil on that shot and maybe one other, but I think that's enough in a round like that where almost nothing lands. So... Uh, yeah, I gave I gave that one to Neil in the first round anyway. Yeah, so obviously we're all we're on the same page here. We saw this as Neil round uh, again. I I don't think Doug Crosby's score is crazy. Uh, I think sometimes his scores are crazy, but not this time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we can move on to round two, though. Of course, this was uh, another round that at least there was some closeness to it. Dan, what's happening? Yeah, th- this round's a bit different. Uh, Ponzinibbio comes down and gets right to work right away. Uh, I thought he was throwing some good combos at Neil. His land, his right hand was landing pr- quite a bit. Uh, his inside leg kicks were, were more prevalent this round. Uh, I thought Neil was landing some decent shots of his own, but just not landing as as clean as Ponzinibbio was. His volume is uh, quite a bit less than Ponzinibbio. I think that that's pretty evident. Uh, a lot of weird stuff happens around the 32nd mark where they're just pointing at each other. Just like that scores. It, it was really <laughs> weird. Like I, Mark Smith was like, "Come on, guys, fight! What are you guys doing?" <laughs> uh, I thought Ponzinibbio's jab was a bit more uh, effective this round. I thought this was a a good round for Ponzinibbio 10-9. I did think it was a good round for Ponzinibbio as well. I, and actually, I thought this was a lot more clear than I think the first round was for Neil. I thought it was a little easier to give this one to Ponzinibbio, so I was a little bit surprised that it was split. Not not crazy surprised, but I it was it was one that kind of made me perk up a little bit that it was this particular round. Although I think round three was much clearer than any of these rounds for Neil, so at least everyone was on the same page there. Um, but yeah, I, I saw this for Ponzinibbio 
pretty much for all the reasons you did. So, and, and you and I saw this the same way as judges Crosby and D'Amato. It was Derek Cleary who saw this one for Neil. What about you, uh, Mr. Sheehan? Who did you see this for? I agree with Ollie. I had for Ponzinibbio. It's one of those rounds where there was less immediately impactful shots than the first round, uh, but more maybe not immediately impactful shots that actually landed in the second round. I think Ponzinibbio landed more. And uh, as Dan said, the jab was pretty good for Ponzinibbio. Uh, I thought it was uh, close but clear, as the as the judges would say, uh, sure. for Ponzinibbio. Another boring bad round, though. Yeah, it, just not a good fight overall. I did think that actually the third round was a little more engaging, at least from an aesthetic point of view. Like I was actually more into it than I was in those first two rounds. Actually, in the first two rounds, I, I was starting to lose interest when I was watching it live. I had to rewatch this later. Uh, and I was much more interested in what was happening in the Lomachenko boxing match, which was on the other television at the bar we were at. So uh, <laughs> that says what I was thinking about this fight. But yeah, I think probably that was enough. The right man won. I think we all agree here. We were all on the same page. Uh, with the majority judges here. So fortunately, the right man gets the win, and, and then we move on from there. Uh, the other decision that we will get to next, this was the featured prelim. Uh, Josh Emmett getting the 29-28 twice and a 30-27 over Dan Ige. Round two is the only round that had any debate regarding where it was going, and, and I think this one made a bunch of people perk up uh, on social media. So Dan, why don't you talk about round two? Yeah, round two, mostly a boxing round. Actually, I don't even recall any kicks being thrown, maybe one or two. Uh, Ige comes out early, and he's throwing some heat. Very heavy shots. It's He's putting everything into it, it appears that way anyway. Clips Emmett, stumbles him a bit, landing some nice combos. And, you know, Emmett around halfway through starts finding a home for his jab. And, you know, he st- you see he started doing some damage to the cheek of uh, Dan Ige. Every time this jab landed, it seemed like Ige was kind of getting in- stopped in his tracks. But uh, nothing nothing in terms of counters were really coming back uh, at Emmett. I thought Ige landed some good punches throughout uh, this round. I mean, I don't recall any clicks being thrown, like I mentioned. Pace definitely slows up halfway through this round, and Emmett starts finding a home for a couple more punches in the second half. But, you know, Ige was the more effective fighter. I go 10-9 Ige. Sean, why don't you jump in? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think 10-9 Ige as well. Um, it, it, look, it was one of those rounds where... I went back and I just watched the second round. And sometimes I think that's a a good thing to do if you want to look at the specific score of a specific round to not see what came before it. Because what came before it was Danige almost getting knocked out in the first round. And that led to Josh Emmett looking for the knockout for the first minute and a half or two minutes and a half of the second round because he thought he could land the exact same strike again. And that landed him landing no strikes and Ige landing loads, and as Dan said there, okay, he, his jab started coming in the second half of the round, but I think Ige won the first half of the round, I think it was maybe a more even second half of the round, and when that happens, I think I think Ige wins that round, I don't think Emmett really landed anything, as Dan said, Ige, um, anything immediately impactful, and Ige did rock him a little bit towards the, the start of that, so yeah, I think as a five minutes by itself, which all rounds are scored, I think that's uh, that's a one for Ige. Not, not a blow away or anything like that. You know, there wasn't anything massive, but yeah, I, I do. I, I would score that for Ige too. I didn't think it was, you know, a shutout like you were kind of talking about as well, but I, I thought this was a pretty solid round for Ige. I think because we're talking about those immediately impactful strikes and that, that very clearly to me was coming from Ige. I don't think that you could make the argument that anything Emmett was landing was more immediately impactful than anything Ige was landing. And I don't think he has the volume there either. So really, where's the argument? So obviously... 
Judge D'Amato is is basically the gold standard when it comes to judging, as far as I'm concerned. So I don't necessarily want to sit here and say, oh, yeah, bad job, Sal. But it, it's, it was surprising. I wonder what he was looking for, what he was seeing. You know, you always wonder about, again, kind of what you were talking about before, the angle you're at, which strikes you're missing, which ones you're seeing. Uh, but I did think that uh, Judge Ron McCarthy and Doug Crosby actually got it right here, seeing this for Ige. So we're all on that page. And that is uh, just brings us to our last fight of the night, which we've been alluding to a little bit. And I think this one's actually the most interesting, despite the fact that it was buried on the kind of early prelims here. Ryan Hall gets the win unanimously over Derek Minner, 30-27 twice and a 29-27, which means we've got two rounds to break down, one being a 10-9 split, one being a 10-8-10-9 conversation here. So starting with round one, this is our kind of split round as to who won it. Dan, take us through. At the beginning of the round, they kind of just, you know, squaring off. Hall's throwing some kicks at him. Minner, Minner's trying to stay in his face, you know, pressure him. Uh, eventually, they they clinch or, or Hall does one of his crazy rolls, trying to get into some kind of leg entanglement to bring it to the ground. Not really anything close there. It just uses it to sweep. Uh, it doesn't really lead to much offense. Uh, I love watching it because as a jiu-jitsu guy, you know, not, but, you know, Nothing's really coming from it, so I can't really score much effect there. Uh, back on the feet, the most impactful and effective offense is coming from Minner. He lands two big uppercuts that back Hall off. Maybe even, you know, I don't want to say rock, but he definitely stunned him a bit. Uh, and then I don't know why Minner decided to do this. He decides to shoot a double leg because he's crazy. Uh, ends up stuck in another leg entanglement. Hall ends up on top in half guard, landing what I feel is pitter-patter. Cage side, maybe it feels a bit more impactful, but... Just stays there, top half guard, landing a couple of these small shots to the head. But I'm scoring this one for Minner based on the, the more immediately impactful strikes, 10-9. Yeah, I'm with you. I thought this was actually, I mean, it's still a tough call because you, you've got a lot of uh, grappling offense that is coming from Ryan Hall here. But when you're talking about what you weigh in the round, obviously striking and grappling, effective striking and effective grappling are weighed uh, on the same tier, but... I think most judges and most officials would probably tell you, you really ought to be giving the the edge to the striking. Uh, and that's what we have here. I think if you've got, you want to call this a sort of a, almost a tie, so to speak, in terms of one guy had the better grappling, one guy had the better striking. I think a tie has to go to the striker here. I don't even think it was necessarily a tie. I do think that there, there was some real heavy effect to those uppercuts that Minner's landing. And it really wasn't that much, but I don't know how close... Ryan Hall was really getting kind of to those submission attempts we're talking about. So I felt pretty good about seeing it the same way as Eric Cologne, 10-9 Minner, uh, whereas Ryan Hall got Mike Bell and Junichiro Camillo's score for this round. Sean, what about you? What do you think here? Yeah, I'm actually, I hadn't even heard the scores until you just said that there. I'm very surprised that anyone would score this for uh, for Ryan Hall. I don't see any uh, way that you could score for him like his his gym is called the 50 50 gym isn't it? mm-hmm. it's a 50 50 position it's literally it is what it says in the thing it's a 50 50 position you're not winning that mm-hmm. position if you're just in it okay if you get the leg lock or the heel hook or whatever it might be then absolutely but until you get that you're not it, it's it's you know 50 50 that's a good point. Uh, and he he didn't um Minner landed the better shots throughout the round. He landed those big uppercuts. He landed the impactful shots. There was no, uh, I, I don't know, is it, the word impactful right, but uh, submissions. There was nodding on, nodding near finishing the fight. There's just no way you can score this for Ryan Hall. I, don't, I think this is a, as clear a day uh, around as you could find. Also, what, what did you say it was a 29-27? Was there a 10-8 round in here somewhere? Yes, round three is a 10-8 or a 10-9. We're going to get to that one really? shortly. 
Okay, we got that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And both of the surprising, and it was of course the same judge because he's got a twenty nine twenty seven. So that was that was where both Eric Cologne uh, with Mike Bellin again, Junior Camillo, uh, were the majority scores in both the rounds. But to kind of wrap up this first round here, I would have to think that it has to do with like, I mean, are you missing those two key strikes? Because those are really those are the, almost the round, like more or less. Like if you, if you don't see that or you don't see it all that well or or clearly. I can understand why you'd have to go for Hall here, but that's really the only kind of out that I would give uh, necessarily on the judges here. Does that sound uh, kosher to you guys? Yeah, that's that's the only thing I could think of as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but obviously, we we all agree this is a minute round, and, and we saw it the same way as just Eric Colon uh, on his own. But we we've joined him on uh, on Team Minute here. So Dan, what does that mean? Couch side over. <laughs> And moving on, this is our final round of contested rounds. It's the third round, which, again, Sean was a little surprised to hear that there was a potential 10-8 here. So, Dan, why are we talking about this as a maybe 10-8? All right, so the fight gets to the ground pretty quickly. Minner's on top, lands a couple punches, nothing really big, and this allows Hall, you know, gets into another leg entanglement, has a decently deep heel hook attack, but Minner defends it well. Hall uses it to get on top, and he mounts him. Stays there for the entire round. Full three minutes. In that three minutes, he's landing some punches to the body, uh, and then he locks up an arm triangle position. And you know, I'm not going to con- criticize Ryan Hall. He's a BJJ expert. I'm just a blue belt. But it seemed like if he locked his hands together and moved off to the side, he- he'd finish. Or at least end up on Minner's back, and that's no place Minner wants to be. Uh, but I think it still completely shut down anything Minner did. While he landed decent punches to the body. I think we have solid dominance and duration with some grappling damage. Because it, it clearly diminishes Minner's ability to fight. Probably his confidence as well, as all he's doing is basically trying to survive. He's just sitting there. He's not even fighting. Uh, No even escape attempts. At one point, he has to, while the hands aren't grasped, the choke is getting close. At one point, he does the answer the phone tech uh, defense for an arm triangle, which indicates to me that, okay, at least he's starting to get choked a bit. Sure. Uh, I'm on 10-8. I think think there's enough there for it. It's interesting you say that. I... I don't necessarily agree with you, but speaking with uh, you know some officials uh, in the in the day since then, just kind of learning about kind of how they would interpret a round like this, because I do think it's an interesting round, especially in the context of the changes we've had in the last year or so. There's uh, this is like a totally lopsided round for uh, no matter how you you, you want to call it eight or nine, that's it, fine. But this is a lopsided round. For Ryan Hall, there's really nothing else going on. I think from from Derek Minner, we have a lot of some like good submission attacks here. You know, triangles, reverse triangles, things like that. And then of course the the arm triangle choke, which I I think almost that's the thing that hurts his case the most when you're talking about a 10-8 here because there was a there was not an urgency to this attack. There's a lot of cooking here and, and I and a lot of slowing down where it doesn't seem like anything's really happening. If he was a little more offensive, a little more attacking with it. I I think I'd be more inclined. To go for the nine here, uh, but or excuse me, go for the eight here. But I did see it as a nine, and my understanding too is that a lot of judges probably would have seen this as an eight a year ago. But I think the the prevailing wisdom is that this is really more of like a a nine today. Sean, what do you think? Uh, do you know what I thought was one of those odd rounds where you had the duration but not the dominance in a, in a weird way? Now you know if you look at that round, he was dominant, but it wasn't like. It wasn't like he was dominating every position in that, as you said, he got a little bit lazy maybe at times and he was, you know, kind of laying in a position at times and holding a trying. Like, as well, I, I was thinking during this round, you know, not all submission attempts, just like not all punches, are impactful. Of course. Or are, you know, he was just kind of laying in some of it sometimes. And I don't think he had any damage in terms of strikes. He was, you know, landing a few, but there wasn't really anything here. Um, 
if you were to give it a, a 2D's dominance and duration in a 10-8 like that, a year ago, as I said, no problem. I, I couldn't disagree with you there, although I don't think it was as dominant maybe as it looked. Um, and I don't think I don't think he had enough damage with strikes or, you know, impact with strikes or impact with um with submissions to, to get a 10-8. Very surprised to hear that, that they had scored at a 10-8. Um, but look... I think Dan made some good points there, and as he was making them out, making them out, I kind of turned a little bit in, into you know understanding, and you know that's what judging is about understanding and not agreeing. So I have no problem uh, with, with that. But I don't know; it just felt like as well. You know, we talk about the the adjustment and the judging criteria, um, and the fact that look, damage was always the main of the three Ds. It sure. always has been, even before it was adjusted, and that's why I don't think it would have been even a ten eight a year ago. It would have been closer, but now I was. You know, I, I didn't even think about it being a 10-8, to be honest, as I watched it. But, uh, yeah, kind of surprised it was it was a 10-8. But, look, we, we all know who won the round. I think Ryan Hall won the round. Um, did, you know, the, the question I kind of judges have given out to me for asking is, did Miller earn his nine? Which is not always a fair question and, and can bring you to, uh, like, wrong places at sure, the wrong sure. time. But he didn't do much to earn his nine, though, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there is, an, there is an argument for a 10-8. But I think... It's a ten nine that feels like the right score here. I think when you when you break down the three Ds and when you look at it as an overall round as well. There's there's kind of an argument to be made that this is really what a, a ten eight and a half would look like, you know, where it's 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 very clearly not a nine, but it's also very debatably not an eight. So it it lives in that middle ground that I think judges really hate because they don't have the right tool at their disposal for this kind of thing. Uh, it is what it is, and it really doesn't matter, especially when we're talking about a third round of a fight that I think everybody knew who was going to win. All the judges at least knew who was winning on their own card. So it, to talk about a round like this, it, it's really just for you know the, the, the nerds like us who really care about this kind of thing. But it, it's still very interesting, I think, to break down a round like this because a round like this can happen at any time. Well, I, I think I think it, the argument here is, is Eric Cologne within the criteria, and I think he is 100%. I think he could back it with the criteria, sure. So that, that's where I'm on it. I'm on it to the where, as Sean was saying, yeah, did Minner earn his nine? I really don't think he did because for three minutes he just sat there because he knew the only way out of this, because my arm is isolated, is to give my back. And do I want to give my back? No, so I'm just going to chill here. He, he made no attempt to, to get out. So I, I feel his spirit, his fight, fighting spirit is diminished in, in that sense. Okay. So that's fair. I can understand that. Um, but yeah, that was that was the end of our contested rounds here. Uh, again, I, I think we have been in the midst of some very excellent judging going on. I think even despite all the rounds that we're kind of talking about here in a in a card that was one super deep, but also didn't have a ton of decisions. The percentage isn't necessarily super high like we had in the last couple weeks uh, of judging agreement. But I do still think we've we've just been in a period, especially this month, even compared to some other months this year, the judging has been very sharp and, and we're, people don't appreciate how good judging actually is in 2021. <laughs> so I, I'm thrilled with it. What do you think of that, Sean? Just kind of the state of judging. I know you're pretty happy with it overall, but like, where do you think we are like even at this moment? Yeah, I think robberies don't really exist anymore in MMA, uh, at, the, at the top level, at least. Um, uh, today I spent my whole morning and it's the most annoying day of my year getting the awards together. Mm. And I was I was <laughs> I was looking for a robbery of the year candidate. And uh, maybe you could actually give me a few ideas and, <laughs> and help me out. But you know, Rory McDonald versus Glaston Diva was the, That's the one, one that jumps out. I, I can't really think of any other one. And like I think a biggest a big issue as well with PFL is that they were in a bubble and they didn't maybe have the most top class judges in the world judging their cards. And I think that might be a big issue. But all the judges judging. Uh, uh, in in 
the UK and Ireland, uh, well, the UK anyway, uh, and maybe a further field in Europe. And the top people in uh, the States are absolutely fantastic, very consistent. You can understand all their scores. They very, very rarely have a score. If you understand the criteria that you can't understand, they have loads of scores that you can't understand if you don't understand the criteria and you get them all the time. Uh, but that's a different event for another day, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I, I, don't, I just, I think robberies don't exist in MMA anymore at, at the very top level. And um, it's that's a hard thing, I suppose, all of us to try to explain to people. And I think it's taken three or four years of being re- well maybe not that long but maybe three years looking at all these judging decisions to kind of come up with that because it's just it's a fact really it's just really a fact i think it's usually uh the closest fights are, are termed robbery it seems oh people just go crazy <laughs> over it. i think a lot of times people especially on nights where there really isn't a lot of like bad judging so to speak or especially when there's just a ton of decisions in a row i think people are just like they get frustrated for one reason or another and they're just like all right well this obviously is like the worst thing ever um there have been some rounds throughout the year that i think have probably been some not of the greatest scored rounds necessarily but none of these guys people when men or women ended up really losing these fights again i, I do think rory mcdonald was probably screwed out of out of a victory there i i hate the word robbery but it's as close as you're going to get to me declaring something as a robbery uh so to speak but the one thing that kind of jumps out in my mind uh sean as maybe not maybe it is a robbery in in a sense is that there was a fight that i was told about uh that took place in brave about a month or two ago and i believe it was a unanimous 29 29 which there's something fishy there (laughs) like seriously sean i mean how often do you see because you probably pay more attention to European MMA and, and, and Middle Eastern MMA, those type of things, because you're closer to that side of the world. But how often are we really seeing 10-10s dished out one at a time, let alone by all three judges? Uh, yeah, that does seem very fishy. I wonder, I wonder, is there a different criteria over there? Maybe, I don't know. Because there are different criteria in different places. And don't, don't 1FC have a different criteria and uh, score well, the fight one, as a whole? One does their own thing. Yeah, they they have sort of like a pride-ish scoring where it's just, yeah, they score the fight as a whole. So that one's very... And they do actually have on their website like a whole list of, of the way it's supposed to be judged. It is bizarre, sir. Um, but, I mean, even given that, like I, I understand it's possible that maybe Brave was using some sort of modified criteria there i'm not super familiar with it so take it for what it is but when i was tipped off to this fight actually having happened i'm like well hold up what what is going on here that never happens this is definitely something seems a little hinky right yeah that that does sound very very odd but i like i think um i think a lot of areas where mma is kind of coming into now are being smart and bringing in people like you know the likes of mark goddard or ben carlage i know ben was over in um France at the weekend for that airy show and he was at their first one as well mm-hmm. and uh, he was working with the the French uh, Martial Arts Association or whatever their their name might be mm-hmm. to kind of you know teach those judges and help them along and I know um even here in Ireland we have an Irish Mixed Martial Arts Association with some judges who go to the Bellator show you know where I'm sure Ben is at and uh you know, Brian Minor and other people like that, and they, they sit inside the judges and they go and shadow at the events and they, they learn an awful lot. So I think that's the way forward. You know, all all the judges that come through in the UK come through with Ben and with uh, Mark Goddard and with other people. So that, that's the way to do it. it. It's it's a weird thing to kind of explain to people sometimes. And I had maybe have a, had to have, have it explained to myself as well at times, and I'm sure you did as well, mm. how ju- judges actually, you know, come up and how, how they become judges. And it's, it's really like 
an apprenticeship with other judges kind of explaining them to them. Yes, absolutely. They'd be kind of becoming a, a brother and sisterhood, I suppose. And um, yeah, I, I, where that happens, I think there can be good judges everywhere. And we've seen that. I think there's a lot of good uh, Polish judges at the moment and referees. Like, I agree. You know, Lucas Pazaki and you see Daryl Ransom coming through at the moment over in the UK and David Leatherby to me is one of the best judges in the world. I, you know, I'm biased, but I think Ben is the best judge in the world. Um, and I, Hard I, to debate know, it, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, maybe it's another point here, but I would love to see judges from this side of the world going over to your side of the world and doing some of those fights as well because they do that in boxing and they do that everywhere. Let's have the best judges in the world judging the biggest fights in the world uh, because there aren't that many great judges. The, the great judges do great jobs, uh, but uh, we need uh, we need more of them in the bigger fights. But uh, yeah, look, I think the the level of judging is is generally very, very good um, in, in a lot of the big shows that we talk about and that mm-hmm. we... Uh, that we look at, to be honest, but uh, maybe maybe the local shows and stuff are a little bit different, but not so much in Ireland or, or the UK. I don't think Texas. You got to wonder about every time we go to Houston. Oh God, it's a yeah, little bit well, that's a different. That's story another now, conversation yeah. for another day, I think, Sean. But uh, but let's yeah. really quick before we uh, kind of wrap up with UFC 269, we got to talk about the finishes because we we love to you know bring in the finishes as well. It was it's not all about judging for us. So nine of them on the evening. Out of, I want to say, 14. I actually should have wrote that down. Oops. Uh, five by uh, KO or TKO, four by sub. Five of these finishes came in the first round. Dan, what was your favorite of the finishes? Uh, Jillian Robertson getting the uh, rear naked choke over the cheating, dirty Cachoeira. <laughs> Gouging eye out to uh, try to get out of it. It was really impressive. Dig her thumb <laughs> into the eye twice. I mean, there's, there's no defending that. She needs some kind of consequence. I don't know if anything came down yet or if, if we've been informed of it, but that definitely something needs to happen. The, the wild thing was that she did it once and it was like, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe you get desperate, you do something. But then she, like, obviously very clearly was like heat seeking that thumb yeah, to try and get it into an eye socket. It. it was like, what are you doing? here lady this is a terrible i mean she's i don't think she's ever gonna fight in the ufc again i think probably her record probably doesn't help her uh, but obviously the behavior too there it's not like that's blatant cheating to a very dangerous degree like you hold on to the gloves like you know we don't need to get into that conversation with uh olivera and poye holding on to the gloves is one thing but if you're actually gonna grab like try to shove your thumb into an eyeball to the point where maybe they let go of choking you i mean that's messed up yeah, that's, sure, that's something that i'm sure not okay bisping with. doesn't like that oh uh, well <laughs> I mean, you could do it to him now. <laughs> yeah, now it's it's could, not going to yeah. hurt him anymore. Uh, my favorite finish, though, was Tai Tuivasa getting the knockout of Augusto Sakai early in round two, and only because it spared us of nine and a half minutes more of the same fight, because <laughs> that was not an enjoyable uh, heavyweight MMA experience in my uh, on my behalf. So very glad to move on with the card from there. Sean, what was your favorite finish? I, I'm going to agree with you and say Tai Tuivasa. And I want to make <laughs> another point in, in this time that uh, comes here. Franz Malambo, he's an Irish fighter, and he fought on uh, Combat Chess Global this uh, Yes, I was watching was, that. This morning. Uh, Great judging decision, I thought. It was a split decision, but I think they got... It was a close third round, a very, very close one. And there could have been a 10-8 in the middle of that as well. Just obviously, we're talking on a judging podcast. I thought that was a very good one. And you asked me earlier about like my standout performer of the weekend. He's probably the one, you know, for to look past the UFC card. He was phenomenal. I think he, sh- he won eight out of his last uh, nine fights. I think he should be in the UFC. He's a very good fighter, and I have to give a shout out for that judging because it was very, very good. Yeah, I was watching that card as well. I don't, I don't always watch uh, Combate Global, but it was actually on on a Sunday night, which made it a little easier for me to watch. And and especially, I had written a feature on uh, Leodegario Muniz, who had gotten to the semifinals. If you recall, Sean, uh, he got knocked out by uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Kevin Cordero. Was that his name? I don't know. I only watched the Franz Malambo fight. Oh, uh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, it was the guy who Malambo like beat in the uh, in the title fight uh, or in the championship fight of the tournament. That was that guy who, who knocked 
knocked out uh, Muniz there. So I was watching for that. I had kind of tuned out a little bit after that point because I was like, well, the local guy, because he was kind of local for the New York Post, which I cover for, uh, he was gone. So I'm like, all right, I think I can just move on with my night, unfortunately. But it was what it was. He Malumbo was impressive, though, in the in the first couple rounds when I saw him as well. So, hey, you know what? Another Irish guy gets up there. I'm sure you'd be pretty proud of that, right? Yeah, it's great. It's it's a good time for you know Irish MMA at the moment. They're kind of uh, coming back. I'm sure you watch a bit of Cage Warriors. They're are doing good things. Paul Hughes is fighting for a title coming up at the start of next year, and you know Franz is, is a champion uh, over an FEN in uh, in Poland, I believe it is, and looks like he's fighting for the Combatius title now as well. And you know we have lots of fighters in Bellator and outside, and obviously you know Conor McGregor and Ian Gary and a few. Who, in who the are they? I'm not Conor who. Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't. I don't think he's crossed over here yet. <laughs> I think he used to be a Federal or something. Yeah, something like that. that yeah, and then he never defended yeah, a belt or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they heard of him sometime. Yeah. Uh, but that that is it for 269. We got to look forward to one more UFC event for the year, and that is UFC Vegas 45. We're we're now up to that point at the apex of non pay per view events, uh, which was against once again 7 p.m. Eastern time main card start, which again hopefully is friendly. Uh, for Mr. Sheehan and all of his Irish compatriots. The main event here, Derek Lewis against Chris Dawkins, 265. Dan, you have been a big Dawkins Brothers fan uh, going back to his, his their time at CFFC, right? Yeah, back on the regional scene on, on their way up. I uh, never actually went to watch them. I, they just so happened to always be on the cards I was there for. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see them do good things. I think Chris Dawkins is going to get his biggest win ever. I think it's going to be a similar fight to the DC fight where Dawkins just keeps throwing him on his back and he's eventually going to get a choke. Okay, so you do see him trying to make it more of a grappling match. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. He's definitely, he's got the the tools in his belt for it. I actually spoke to Chris earlier this morning uh, and and it's not that he was saying he would definitely do that or anything like that. I, he wasn't going to touch upon what his actual strategy was, but you know, he, he understands he's got that in his belt and it's something he can do if he needs to. But, uh, you know, I think someone like him, he, he, he knows that Derek Lewis is very dangerous at literally any moment of this fight, no matter how deep it goes, he'd prefer it. Chris would not to get it into the, the deeper waters. He just kind of wants to end it early. But having said that, I, I do think this does favor Chris Dawkins because he does have all those tools in his belt because he has heavy enough hands that he can actually put Derek Lewis in a bit of trouble too. If he gets wild, he's in trouble uh, because let's face it, Derek Lewis, again, he can land it. He can land any one punch or, mm-hmm. or a kick or anything like that. And he can just end it. Um, and, and he is the most, I think what he has is just the, the most ferocity uh, in that heavyweight division. I think that's a really big underrated tool to have in your belt if you're a, if, especially if you're a big striker. Um uh, but yeah, I'll go with I'll go with Dawkins round 2 uh I'll say TKO, but I think it's going to be more like a ground and pound kind of thing. Okay. That's how I see it. What do you what do you think, Sean? I I agree. I think Dawkins round 2 TKO. I'm going to go with exactly what you said. I'm just going to copy. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I think I think he's a good fighter. I was really really impressed with his last couple of outings. Um I, I don't know where I was talking on some podcast. I've uh, just, I don't know where I talk these as, but um, <laughs> I, I was kind of saying that this Derek Lewis now means more than I suppose Derek Lewis has ever meant in terms of a win. And if you can beat Derek Lewis in the heavyweight picture that we have right now, where there's a title fight coming up, where John Jones is kind of in uh, this kind of la la land, we don't know if he's ever going to fight. Is he going to end up in jail? What's going to happen? When, uh, uh, so no, guessing. no guessing about uh, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Chris Dawkins could 
with a win over Eric Lewis, he could quickly find himself in like the title picture because we know it's steep as well. He's like, will he fight? Won't he fight? Will he get a title fight? Won't he get a title fight? And if he doesn't, and if John Jones doesn't, well, who's next? And it, you know, it could be usually the answer to who's next is Derek Lewis, oddly. Yeah. So if you beat Derek Lewis, then maybe you're next. So yeah, Chris Dawkins could put himself in that position with a win here and maybe one more win. Uh, so it's a big fight uh, in, in that fashion. The fight itself, you know, it's hard to know what Lewis will turn up, but uh, I think Dawkins should have enough for him either way. I th- yeah, I think probably there's a little bit of safety in picking Dawkins here just because, like we said, the Lewis that shows up. I think he's been a lot more consistent ever since. I think it was his knee that got repaired, and that somehow improved his back, as he explained it to me uh, earlier this year, which, all right, you know, I believe it. It's, you know, different parts can can kind of, if you're overcompensating or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, Dawkins, we're all we're all agreement here. Dawkins is going to be the winner on uh, this one. Not that I'd be surprised if it go either way, I'm sure. I speak for you, too, as well. What other fights on this card interest you? Dan, what, what are you thinking? Uh, we got Wonder Boy versus Bilal Muhammad. I, th- I think it should be fun. I mean, originally when I was thinking about this fight, I was like, oh, Muhammad probably win by decision. Now I'm thinking, well, I mean, Stephen Thompson's such a tough puzzle for people. I'm now leaning towards Wonder Boy. Yeah, I kind of picked a, a picture of a very tactical Wonder Boy, uh, maybe slow-paced bout. I, I think Bilal's going to try and make this kind of a, a dirty, you know, not dirty, but kind of grind it out, striking type of thing. Put it in the clinch, maybe try to make it happen. I don't know that he's going to make it happen that way. Uh, I do see a decision uh, for Wonderboy here. Sean, what about you? Well, my two favorite fighters are on this card. Wonderboy, obviously, being uh, being one of them. I'm a massive fan of Wonderboy. But also Darren Elkins. Yes. How, how can you not love Darren Elkins? He's fighting <laughs> Cub Swanson. Like, on paper... I think Cub Swanson should have too much for him and should finish Darren Elkins early here, I think. But that's the only won't. way to beat like, Elkins, right? Yeah, but he probably won't. Let's be honest here. If to, hopefully you know, then he put Herb Dean in here as the referee. <laughs> you know, let him yeah. That's the World MMA Awards <laughs> referee of the year, sir. Uh, I've I've that down as one of the shocking moments of the year, him okay. getting that fucking award. What a, what a joke. But anyway, put Herb in here as the referee. Take and whistle out of his mouth. Don't let him in. That let let him go to the very end. Let Darren Elkins keep going forever, and he probably win at like four fifty eight of the third round. Came, come back against Cub Swanson. That's what I want to see out of Darren Elkins, and I th- I think that's what we will see. Honestly, I think it's going to be uh, really fun. But I have to give a shout out as well to Matthias Gamrat. Uh, there's a massive KSW card on this weekend. Uh, Roberto Soldich versus Mamed Kaladov, two two of the best fighters in the world I outside love of the UFC. Yeah, and uh, Gamrat obviously coming over from KSW. He's 19-1. and one. He's fighting Diego Fajera. That's a really high-level fight it is. in the lightweight division. And he's not too far away from, from contendership, I think, Gamrat. He's really, really good. And he causes a, a lot of people problems. So if you're looking for like the, the high-quality fight, I think that's the most high-quality fight on it. Funnest fight, Darren Elkins. And the one I'm probably most looking forward to is Wonderboy probably winning 30-27 against Bilal Muhammad. What's fun about this show is that we're starting out by talking about uh, Charles Oliveira and we're ending with Darren Elkins. And those two fought in, it was at least Oliveira's debut. I think it was actually Elkins' second fight in the UFC. And I was in-house in San Diego with like 5,000 people for this fight, watching young Charles Oliveira, 20 years old, get a, uh, I believe it was a, a triangle off his back uh, in 41 seconds. So it, it, it's kind of kismet that these two are the two we're talking about. I like that. <laughs> Didn't uh, didn't Anthony Pettis submit Oliveira and knock out Wonderboy? That's some going. 
I think I think you're right, sir. That is uh that is remarkable. Anthony Pettis is he's not the greatest lightweight of all time to kind of circle back to that conversation, no. but he is he is a very uniquely skilled fighter that I think was always underrated in terms of what he could do on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. and, oh, well, and massively, massively powerful too if he, if he lands it at the right time I don't think he's even the best Pettis of all time to be honest <laughs> really uh, so you still <laughs> yeah. put Sergio there interesting yeah I, I actually asked Sergio last week I interviewed and I was like when did you realize you were a better fighter than your brother which <laughs> 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 he kind of dodged but I do I think Sergio is a way better fighter than Anthony ever was but Anthony is very dangerous and you know very high level I like he's more submission wins than he has knockouts Anthony does um and I always thought that was a better part of his game. Maybe didn't he give himself credit for it? But uh, yeah, I don't know how we got into Anthony Pettis. But anyway, I remember I spoke with Anthony Pettis years ago. I think it was right before he fought for the title and won the title uh, in the UFC. It was like a brunch or something like that, that a media arranged brunch with just him. And I asked him about his brother because everyone knew that he was kind of on the come up, at least on the uh, the regional scene or maybe it was Amy. And I asked, like, what, what's he like? Is he like you? He's like, no, no, no. He's like a tank. He's like this little, like, grappling tank who can wrestle and all this stuff. So when he came up, I was aware that he at least had, a, you know, not a more well-rounded skill set necessarily, but could potentially not be the type of fighter who's just going to get wrestled, uh, you know, wrestle left, as, as they like to say. Um, so it was nice to, to really see that he has come along and to beat Kyoji Huraguchi. Granted, it was a fight he was clearly losing up until the point he won it uh that's a really big feather i have a lot of respect for oraguchi so hat tip to him i'm very curious to see who wins this bellator grand prix next year james galler of course come on oh of course you're gonna go with the homer there yeah (laughs) Uh, the homer pick for you sir i I always do this just like taking the face whenever i go i'm sorry am i not low course actually at this podcast i've probably cursed about five times already but that's all right i like i like to throw in like a a conor mcgregor an ian gary a james uh, galler every so often just like throw in a bit of bias there because people are expecting it like you know and i've kind of uh yeah, it's a good tournament though it's a great tournament I, I i'd be interested to see how the matchmaking is going to be in this tournament because um like you could throw galler in with haraguchi and it'd be very tough or you could give him someone like a higo maybe it was a more of a winnable fight and work guys up i, I would almost like to see matchmaking like that uh good matchmaking from the start even matchmaking from the start let guys win their way up honestly and maybe we get different fights down the line but it's uh it's going to be interesting i i I don't think anything can top that featherweight tournament. That was absolutely uh, phenomenal and exceptional, especially the way it finished with, with AJ McKee. But I, I like the bantamweight tournament as well. And I've uh, I've great respect for what Bellator have done over the last couple of years. I think Scott Coker has done a good job. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to that. I look forward to it as well. Well, listen, Sean, Thank you again for joining us on the show. This has been uh, this is definitely one of our longer shows. We don't usually get this long, but we were very glad to to engage in all sorts of conversation. I feel like there's a lot of ground we could cover in future shows. So I hope we can get you back on at some point. Absolutely. Anytime. I love uh, especially talking judging. I, people are sick of me talking about it on my own podcast. So I might as well come on here and, and talk about it. Uh, so anytime you want me on, I'm uh, I'm available. Ads, and let's do it again. Merry Christmas she, and all the listeners as well. I really appreciate y'all. Likewise as well. Uh, Dan, why don't, you, why don't you take us out? Thanks, Sean. No problem. And that is it. We'll be back again on Monday to break down this Saturday's UFC rounds. Hopefully we won't have too much, and that'll be kind of the, the end of the year. We can we can start worrying about uh, wrapping up the year with some of our awards and stuff. Yeah, the judges are coming. The judges are coming. Beware. <laughs> take care, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for listening.